Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Welcome back to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. I am really excited about this episode. Uh, I've been waiting for this one for a while. So I'm going to assert actually that this is the best hijacking in history. And I know, I know that's uh, that's quite a claim and uh, a little oxymoronic, perhaps. Um, but let's let's go through the story and then let, let let's see what you think. So this is the story of the China Airlines Flight three three four. But we need to go back in time to start November twenty sixth, nineteen sixty four. It's two o'clock in the morning. Republic of China Air Force pilot Wang Shiju or Johnny Wong climbed up into his Dragon Lady, that would be his U-2 spy plane, and took off from Taoyuan Air Force Base in northern Taiwan. He then flew across the Taiwan Strait, entering PRC airspace above Fujian province, and then made his way to the city of Lanzhou in northwestern China. The PRC had detonated its first nuclear weapon just a month before in that distant region. There were uranium enrichment facilities in Lanzhou, uh, so it's a good target for the U-2 cameras. During the flight at about 10 minutes after 5 a.m., three SA-2 missiles were fired at the U-2 plane. These were deadly Soviet surface-to-air missiles, guided missiles, right, with an impressive history of downing U-2 planes. But this time, the U-2's electronic countermeasure systems worked and the missiles did not get a kill. Wong was flying a Lockheed U-2, a high-altitude reconnaissance plane, which had earned itself the name Dragon Lady. This nickname for the spy plane came from a character in an old comic strip and the name reflected the mysterious, temperamental nature of the plane. The U-2 was considered the most difficult plane a pilot could fly. Right, and these guys were the elite of the elite, flying super expensive machines and flying solo. One pilot in each airplane and a single airplane. Yep, too high for other planes. The U-2 could fly above 70,000 feet. This is the edge of space. You can see the curvature of the Earth, and you need to wear a pressurized suit like an astronaut. Too high for fighters to attack them. When they designed the plane, they thought it would also be high enough to evade radar detection, but this was not the case. It turned out Soviet radar could spot them quite clearly. And once detected, they were vulnerable to Soviet surface-to-air missiles. As with Gary Powers, who was shot down and captured in 1960, and that would end U-2 overflights of the Soviet Union. Yes, over the Soviet Union they would end, but not elsewhere. It was the images taken by a U-2 flight over Cuba, which revealed Soviet ballistic missiles. That started the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. And actually, incidentally, a U-2 pilot was shot down and killed, too, during that whole thing. That was the sole American casualty of the uh, U-2 uh, program. The CIA outsourced its spying over China to the nationalists on Taiwan. A unit of U-2 planes, the 35th Squadron, known as the Black Cat Squadron, it was formed in 1961 and disbanded in 1974. They flew 220 missions, nearly half of them over China. And during those 102 operations over China, five planes were downed by the PLA. Three pilots died in action and two were captured. The last Black Cat squadron flight over China was in the late 60s, uh, after which time we see satellite surveillance taking over. 
And we should mention, because it's somewhat confusing, there was another ROC Air Force squadron with a similar name, the Black Bat Squadron, Bat as in B-A-T, not Cat. And they were formed earlier than the Black Cats, uh, one number less also. They were the 34th Squadron. Yes, we'll be doing an episode on uh, both of these squadrons. In some ways, the Black Bats were even more amazing than their Black Cat brothers. Uh, On top of gathering intelligence, they were also involved with dropping agents and supplies deep into enemy territory. In China and also Southeast Asia, they were often doing jobs too dangerous or sensitive for the Americans to do themselves. Mm. But back to pilot Wang Shiju. He survived his 10 missions and retired from the Air Force in 1967. And as was pretty common back in those days, you retire from the Air Force. He joined China Airlines as a commercial pilot. And okay, so that's a little bit confusing for people who don't live in Taiwan. Maybe we should explain that as well. Mm -hmm. China Airlines, despite the name, is Taiwan's national carrier. Um, He flew Boeing 707s, 727s, and 747s, but none of his flights for China Airlines ever took him to China. There were no transportation links allowed between Taiwan and China. But he would go to China in a rather (laughs) unexpected way in 1986 by hijacking a plane. Now, Wang had grown up in China. Yeah, he was born there uh, in Sichuan province, southwestern China, in 1929. Uh, He enrolled in an Air Force high school in 43. uh, And in that great exodus of 1949, he moved with the school to Taiwan. And after graduating and proving to be an exceptional pilot, he was chosen for the U-2 squadron, uh, which involved some training in Texas. Uh, He completed this in 63. The next year, he flew his first U-2 operation, which was over Shanghai. So as we noted after his military service, he was a pilot for Taiwan's carrier, China Airlines. And we're talking about, you know, decent money, prestige, the rare opportunity for Taiwanese at that time to go see the world. He's married. He has kids. Life is good, except he's been waiting to go back to China since 1949. His mother has passed away already, but his dad and his brothers and other numerous relatives are in China. And the retake the mainland rhetoric, all the slogans about heading back to China, they've been stale for a very long time. Yes. So if they're not going back, and it really doesn't seem like they are, then it's about time for things to change so that family members can see each other, no? Yeah, there were moments that offered a a chance for change. Chiang Kai-shek passed away in 1975. Mao Zedong died the following year. And with that, the Cultural Revolution ended. Deng Xiaoping took the reins of power in 1978. Hopeful years of change and openness. Uh, The PRC reached out to Taiwan, trying to establish three links, those three links being postal links, transport, especially flights, and trade. Yeah, they also wanted to establish various exchanges for people, relatives, tourists, academics, sports, cultural groups, things like that. The PRC hopes, in all fairness, it's it's fair to say they were realistic. The mm-hmm. United States had switched diplomatic recognition on January 1st, 1979. So the PRC was the, the new de facto, uh, you know, China. Yeah, time for a new approach. But the ROC saw establishing links as a move towards unification, towards giving up their claims to China. So they took a hard line indeed. Their response, the three no's policy established in April 1979. 
no contact, no negotiation, and no compromise. I love these numbers that we always do with uh, yeah. the, the seven something, the six, the three no's, no contact, no negotiation, no compromise. So those three no's are very disappointing for mainlanders who have come over uh, back in 49, right? Because if you do the math, mm. they come over in 49 at the age of, say, 19, like our pilot Wong. By the 1980s, these people are middle-aged. They haven't seen their family members for decades, and they know time is running out for them to ever see, you know, like parents ever again. Yes, a sad thought, never seeing your loved ones again. Very. Through no fault of your own, making family reunions a reality would take an interesting event, uh, largely forgotten and perhaps not given as much credit for expediating the process as it should be given. Yes, exactly. And now we get to the hijacking I was referring to at the beginning. So... On May 3rd, 1986, this hijacking was arguably the catalyst for all this change. China Airlines Flight 334 was flown by our man, Captain Wang Shiju, uh, Johnny Wong. This plane was a cargo plane, a Boeing 747. When you think of a plane being hijacked or defecting in the context of China and Taiwan, you're going to picture a plane flying from China to fly for freedom or financial reward to Taiwan. But this was a defection in the other direction. Mm. That day, May 3rd, the plane was scheduled to fly from Singapore to Taipei with a stop mm. in Bangkok and then Hong Kong. But it's not going to get to Hong Kong. It took off from Singapore at 5.50 in the morning, flew to Bangkok, and then onward. It's carrying a cargo of fruit. Uh, I think some of that was durians, mm -hmm. fish, and uh, vehicle tires. There are three men on board. Pilot Wang, the first officer, or uh, you could call him the co-pilot, Dong Guangxing, and flight engineer Chou Ming Zi. It's mid-afternoon as they near Hong Kong. Air traffic control at Kai Tak Airport give instructions for the plane to begin its descent. About 20 minutes before the scheduled arrival time of uh, 3.07, Wang sends flight engineer Chou to the hold. He then subdues First Officer Dong, choking him from behind with a chain, handcuffing him and threatening him with an axe. Flight engineer Cho returns, and after a fight, he's also subdued and tied up. Okay, so air traffic control then comes back on air. The plane was supposed to descend, right, at, at Kai Tech, but it has not mm. descended to the correct altitude and is ordered to do so. The air traffic controllers are surprised to hear Wong start calling uh, Guangzhou Airport Control Tower and see the plane flying past Hong Kong. <laughs> at about 3.45 p.m., the 747 lands at Guangzhou Baiyun International Airport. Despite uh, Guangzhou being a major city and this an international airport, things are pretty quiet on the ground. I would say quiet is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> to Wong's surprise, there's no welcoming reception, you know, no band. There's nobody waiting for him. And what, after seems like a really long wait, he sees this guy on a bicycle. The guy on the bicycle rides out across the tarmac to the aircraft, and the shocked rider uh, introduces himself as the deputy head for the Civil Aviation Agency's Guangzhou office. And he's like, oh, sorry, it's a long weekend. It's May Day. It's Labor Day. Um, nobody's here at the airport. <laughs> you, can, you can imagine the guy's surprise, right? This was a shock to pretty much everyone. The Taiwanese authorities had a hard time believing anyone would do such a thing. And to be frank, so did the Chinese. Yeah, it's a bit like breaking into a prison. I'm actually a little surprised, John, that the plane didn't get shot down on the way in. But yeah, 
Uh, evidently, the powers that be on the mainland side decided the plane didn't pose a threat or <laughs> didn't see it or something happened, and it was allowed to land. Yeah, so the, the plane has landed in Guangzhou. In Taiwan, it's assumed Beijing is behind the hijacking. Um, Wang's family members expressed amazement. His wife of 30 years told reporters, I can't think of any reason he would want to go to China. I'm 100% sure he was forced to go there. Um, she and other family members hadn't noticed anything odd before his departure. However, it soon became abundantly clear that Wang had carefully planned and carried out the hijacking by himself. Yeah, so then came KMT scrambling. Uh, what do we do with this plane from our nemesis? We don't recognize them in any way, and they don't recognize us in any way. How do you communicate in a situation when everyone is uh, pretending the other person doesn't exist? So um, a lot of people behind the scenes uh, scrambling. Uh, they couldn't officially begin any negotiations, even set negotiations up because of the three no's. And um, China didn't have ways to contact the ROC government either. <laughs> right. Both sides deeming the other side illegitimate. So, mm. but the plane is clearly sitting there on the tarmac and mm. the plane is clearly a reality. So something needs to be done. They, they couldn't just erase it like they would do with certain products. I, I remember when I was a really young kid, my family first came to Taiwan in like the, the mid eighties or so. We traveled to China when I was young. We lived there for about a year before returning to Taiwan. And when we returned, I, I have this memory of me bringing in a ukulele or some sort of small guitar that was made in China. And Instead of confiscating it at the, the border, they took like a, a Sharpie, a black marker and, and mm. blacked out the made in China thing. I was pretty young. <laughs> I don't remember it exactly. But uh, in any case, you cannot black out an airplane sitting on a tarmac. No, you cannot. Uh, the KMT's three no's policy of no contact, no negotiation and no compromise with the CCP uh, raised the problem of how to get the plane and crew back. Yes, but not all the crew. Pretty quickly, it was determined that the pilot wanted to stay in China. Now, I have no solid proof that Pilot Wong wasn't a communist sympathizer, but there's also really no evidence that I can find that shows that he was. Apparently, he was a bit unhappy with his job at China Airlines. Uh, he got some demerits over some incidents and stuff, but mainly he appears to just have been an aging person who knew his father was not long for this world. And Wong simply wanted to go home to where he came from. So Taiwan's media back then, which was still very regulated, wasn't given any intel. So they first printed stories about a missing plane, as in a missing plane, you know, like it crashed. Mm. For example, the United Daily News printed a Boeing 747F with the serial number B189 was scheduled to arrive in Hong Kong yesterday at 3.07 p.m. and never landed and failed to contact local traffic authorities. There are three crew members aboard and the aircraft is deemed to be missing. We are verifying the reports claiming it has landed in Guangzhou's Baiyun Airport. The authorities said that they believed the CCP had somehow forced the plane to land in China and that we will not change our policy of no contact with the CCP, no matter how unreasonable and difficult they behave. Despite the three no's, uh, there was a, a long tradition of doing things through middlemen in Hong Kong. So if both parties were really willing, yeah, things could happen. China Airlines wanted the Hong Kong-based Cathay Pacific to be a go-between, but Beijing rejected this. They wanted the Taiwanese to come and grovel in China. Grovel? Uh actually grovel, or are they just taking advantage of this opportunity to push for establishing links across the strait? 
I can't blame the Chinese for enjoying themselves. Uh, defections were usually the other way, right? True. Their pilots were the ones flying away, and the government in Taiwan actively encouraging these defections. Just a few months earlier, a PLA Air Force squadron leader had defected in his fighter jet, a Chinese version of the MiG-19, via South Korea and then to Taiwan. Uh, he got a job with the ROC Air Force and a generous welcome to free China, a reward of 5,000 tails of gold. Uh, we're talking several million US dollars. Nice. Welcome to freedom and here's several million dollars. So yeah, three days after the hijacking, this is uh, May 6th, Wang arrives in Beijing and confirms that he had indeed defected. And um, I've seen the footage coming down. You can see him coming down the plane steps to the tarmac. He's in his uniform, not civilian clothes. He seems pretty happy and appreciative of the gathered crowd, which included his father and three brothers. In a press conference, Wang said he missed China. Uh, he'd been homesick. Mm -hmm. And he criticized Taiwan's crime and political corruption. And he said, there are secret police hidden everywhere and the traffic is horrible. <laughs> the traffic is horrible, so I'm moving to China. <laughs> Little did he know, uh, today traffic in Chinese cities is uh, legendarily bad. Um, the secret police thing back in those days, um, you know, um, I get that. But bad traffic, what a strange thing to even mention. Quite. Uh, he also criticized China Airlines management. Uh, workplace resentments usually figure in these stories, don't mm. they? And you mentioned that he had a demerit or two, and uh, this, this would have affected his promotion chances. Yeah, I don't think uh, traffic was actually at the yeah. top of the list. And he said he defected entirely out of his own will, but his family back in Taiwan thought his expressionless delivery indicated that this was not entirely true. Yeah. But I mean, what else could yeah. his family say back in Taiwan, right? Exactly. And there were inevitably rumors that uh, like the defectors going the other way, he had been paid to hijack the plane. Right, right. So the other crew members on board, we have the uh, the co-pilot uh, Dong and then the other person, Cho. They, they both said they wanted to return to Taiwan. So holding them in China for any length of time would have been kind of problematic as I guess they would have been seen as hostages, essentially. So the negotiations, but how do you even set up negotiations with both sides saying we don't acknowledge each other's sovereignty, we don't acknowledge anything? Uh, it's a stalemate. Who would negotiate and where would the negotiations be? So eventually, representatives from both sides met in Hong Kong and talks began on May 17th. China demanded that the Taiwanese come to Guangzhou and retrieve the plane and the two crew members. Yeah, not three. Taiwan wanted all of them as a non-starter. Right, but after a few days, the Chinese conceded and they agreed to send the crew and the plane to Hong Kong. So first officer Dong and flight engineer Cho arrived home at CCK Airport, which is today Taoyuan International Airport, on May 23rd. There were significant ramifications of this case. By forcing the ROC to communicate with the PRC, Flight 334 was the first step in the thawing of relations. It effectively ended the three-nose policy. The very next year, President Jiang Jingguo allowed mainlanders permission to visit relatives in China. And that same year, 1987, the ROC officially ended martial law. Not all the restrictions lifted, but 
it's the start of the end. For direct links, though, direct flights and travel, that would have to wait until, was it 2008? Yeah, and that's a whole nother story in itself. Maybe yeah. we'll get around to it at some point. But yeah, we had to wait till 2008 before we were able to directly fly from Taiwan to China. Amazing. So returning to 1986, the two other crew members got back to Taiwan, as did the plane. And incidentally, that Boeing 747 would not have the world's happiest ending story. No, December 29th, 1991, the aircraft crashed into a hill in northern Taiwan after engine problems. All five crew on board were killed. Catastrophic engine problems. Mm, yeah, I was reading somewhere like two of the four engines fell off. That's pretty uh, catastrophic. But you know, if that plane hadn't crashed, I sort of wish that it was in a museum somewhere, as it is arguably of historic value as one of the starters that got talks between the two sides off the ground, pun intended, Ooh. because they had no choice but to figure out what to do with this plane. It wasn't like this was a defector where the ROC could simply say, yes, welcome to freedom. Here's a bucket of gold or whatever, right? This was a very strange mm. situation, a cargo plane from an airline being flown illegally into China. It didn't fall under any of the rule book guidelines. So therefore, the two sides had no choice but to begin talking. This is the first time in 37 years they had to come up with some new rules. Well, yeah. So uh, Wong would work in China as a pilot and then in administration, he retired. Uh, he's still a wanted man by the ROC authorities for the crime of hijacking, but uh, 25 years limitations on that, I think. So that meant his charge was lifted in 2011. Hmm. Uh, Taipei Times has a great column called Taiwan in Time. Uh, the writer Hang Chun is, is a, a great and uh, it was one of our sources for this hijacking story. He gives some details from the United Daily News, a Taiwanese newspaper. They caught up with Wong 21 years after the incident in Beijing, where he was living. So much for escaping Taiwan's traffic. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Wong told the newspaper that he'd carefully planned the hijacking, requesting to fly the cargo plane a month earlier so that passengers wouldn't be affected. Wong also claimed that there was no struggle during the hijacking that, you know, you you'd said earlier, the, the acts mm. and the, all of that. He said that he tricked Dong by saying he wanted to do an anti-hijacking simulation and then handcuffed him. Hmm. Wong never returned to Taiwan. Uh, what happened to his wife? It seems like they remained married. And uh, the article says they saw each other again in 1991, five years after the incident. And that's a time when the travel restrictions were either even further relaxed. She visited him a few times a year and they traveled together. It's not clear if they lived together in China or, but yeah, mm. um, they saw each other again. Interesting. Still a lot of uh, unanswered questions. Mm. So Eric, uh, any final thoughts on this story? Well, yeah. So that's what I was saying at, at the beginning of the piece that I can't think of a better hijacking in history. <laughs> mm. No one was killed. No one was seriously injured. And it resulted in separated families finally beginning to be able to see each other. So it's a reasonably happy ending. I mean, seriously, when you compare it to the North and South Korea story, where only like mm. a fraction of separated families ever had a chance to, to meet or be reunited, right? So I don't know. I'm sticking with my best hijacking. Mm, okay. John uh, Wong's hijacking of the plane, in your view, is he a villain for that act or, or not? Uh, he's a villain for that. The hijacking of the plane was obviously wrong, potentially dangerous, a selfish act, and a lot of fruit and fish went to waste. <laughs> but it, it doesn't undo his uh, earlier service 
for Taiwan. Right. And uh, by extension, his service to the United States. The Black Cat Squadron was, after all, a CIA program, right? Yeah. Those Black Cat pilots risked their lives to provide valuable intelligence on China's nuclear program, proof of military um, tensions between the PRC and uh, USSR along the Russia-China border, and also information from Vietnam. Yeah, they not only risked their lives, but uh, they often gave their lives. I want to end with a roll call of Wang's graduating class, so to speak. Uh, the second batch of U-2 pilots finished their training in the U.S., the class of 63. You sent me the list. There were four pilots, and here they are in the order of the number of missions completed. There's Johnny Wong, 10 missions. That's the most. Terry Lee, seven missions. In 1964, he was hit and killed by a missile while over Fujian. Robin Yeh, just three missions. He was shot down by an SA-2 surface-to-air missile coming back from photographing atomic facilities. He ejected and parachuted to safety, but was taken prisoner. He was released uh, to Hong Kong in 1982. The CIA arranged for him to go to the United States. He was not allowed back in Taiwan until 1990. Jiang Jingguo thought he was compromised by his time in the PRC. Uh, he, he passed away in 2016. And the fourth pilot was Sonny Liang. He had zero missions. Zero missions because he died during training. One of seven pilots actually to, to die during training. He drowned after ejecting from his plane. Wong was the only one unscathed, the only one of his class to make 10 missions. And he passed away uh, in February 2021 at the good old age of 91 years. Mm, what a fascinating story. Um, like, like so many of the stories we tell, John, this should be a movie. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible. We are going to tackle uh, more stories about family separation, uh, links between China and stuff like this. But this is just the opening story of the, the very beginning of the thaw between uh, relations between the ROC and the PRC. This has been Formosa Files. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye. Bye. <laughs>